Welcome to the Sound on Sound podcast. Welcome to the June Sound on Sound podcast, which accompanies the July issue of the magazine. I'm Editor-in-Chief Paul White, and with me is Technical Editor Hugh Robb-Johns. Hello again. As always, there's a lot to look forward to in the July issue, but first, let's see what he's been working on over the past few weeks. Well, I've been playing with a very large new console from Allen & Heath. It's the latest addition to their GS range. It follows on from the ZR16 and R24, I suppose, and this is called the GSR24M. It has motorised faders, 24 mono mic line channels. There's also four stereo line-ins, a pair of mono valve channels. The impressive thing is that it's got a built-in interface, which can be either analogue or digital. The digital version has Firewire and ADAT connections with embedded MIDI, which enables it to plug straight into your door and work as the kind of console hub to your studio. And as with most Allen & Heath consoles, it sounds fantastic. It's great mic preamps, lovely EQ and really nice facilities. They've basically taken all the feedback they've had from the ZR16 and used that to produce an improved, enhanced, really, really nice console. I've also been looking at a very interesting new loudspeaker monitor stand from an Irish company, a new startup Irish company called Ardan Audio. And it's a, it's a very sophisticated, very engineered product that supports small to medium-sized loudspeakers. Initially, it's designed for desktop use or for large meter bridge applications. But in the pipeline, apparently, are some tall floor standing stands, which would enable these support units to sit on top. And then you could put it behind your desk or behind your console. And uh, that'll be a review coming in very soon. That's very impressive design. Nice piece of kit. So that's taken up most of my time. What about you, Paul? What have you been doing? Well, I've recently returned from my holiday in Turkey, where I was finishing off a book that I've been working on, covering the subjects of um, what else but recording and production. I also managed to do a studio SOS job for the hotel owner, who turns out to compose film and TV music in his spare time, mainly during the winter. Now, we had to use cotton-stuffed Turkish cushions as absorbers, and we made our own speaker platforms out of foam offcuts and floor tiles because there's no B&Q or anything like it within hundreds of miles of where he lives. So uh, everything was improvised. It worked rather well, and it cost not a cent, so you can read about that shortly. I've also been preparing for my live sound duties at Malvern's Westfest, which is on July the 9th, and I'll be trying out some of the live sound kit that I'm reviewing there. Other than that, I seem to have had a run on software emulations of classic compressors, specifically the 1176 and LA-2A, both from Native Instruments and IK Multimedia. Native also have the DBX160, which is another popular thing to emulate. So I don't know what it is about this old kit, but the designer's certainly got something right. What do you think, Hugh? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Camel Audio has announced the release of the Steamworks Sound Library for Alchemy and the Alchemy Player, which was created by none other than our own PC guru, Martin Walker. Now, Martin actually is pretty well known for his music and sound effects design on over 100 games soundtracks in the past. And the Steamworks Library is a cinematic netherworld featuring keyboard instruments made up from clocks, drum kits built with steam-powered machines, fog-shrouded soundscapes, gothic choirs, and all the other kind of hippie things that you might expect from Martin. There are 150 presets, and Steamworks can be used as a standalone instrument with the free Alchemy Player. The Steamworks library costs just 59 US dollars, or 39 pounds, and you can find out more at www.cameladio.com. Sontronic's Halo guitar microphone features a dynamic capsule suspended in a circular frame incorporating a spring suspension, which is very similar to the Sontronic Saturn, giving it a very vintage vibe. 
It's based on the technology found in Sontronic's STC80 handheld dynamic mic, which gives great results on guitar amps and cabs, as well as on vocals. It has a frequency response that stretches between 50Hz and 15kHz, and costs £129. If you've ever wondered how the spring reverb in your guitar amp might sound applied to your mix, you can now give it a try, courtesy of Radial Engineering's Tank Driver module for the Workhorse and 500 series racks. This device patches directly to the phono connectors on your amp's spring reverb unit, and you can adjust the wet and dry balance on the box. Shimmer and boom controls add extra top end or extra lows, and a drive switch increases the output to compensate for less sensitive spring units. The spring may be in the air, but this is not available until the end of June, and the tank driver is set to cost around $300 US. More info from Radial Eng, that's radial followed by ENG, no gaps, dot com. Moog Music have announced the MF108M, which is the dangerously named Cluster Flux an analog effects processor that forms the latest addition to the Moogafuga line of analog effects. The Cluster Flux is capable of providing classic flanging, chorusing and vibrato effects, plus a much wider range of modulated delay line effects than traditional stomp boxes can do in this class. It features a multi-waveform LFO as well as control voltage and MIDI control facilities, and the LFO waveforms provide sine, triangle, square, saw, ramp and a random modulation. MIDI input allows control of key parameters and the Cluster Flux FM108M will be available later this year for manufacturer's recommended price of $599. Well, thanks for getting that right pre-Watershed, Hugh, and now it's on to the next item. TC Helicon have announced Voice Live Touch, the first vocal processor to feature an integrated mic stand mount and an interface, which you can touch. It delivers high-quality vocal effects and includes a high-performance vocal looper, all in a package that fits neatly onto your mic stand. The looper can hold up to 25 separate loops with instant undo and redo, single shot mode and more. Guitarists can add the optional Switch 3 for combined foot pedal and touch control, while Voice Live Touch Interface provides for fast and intuitive control direct from your mic stand. Voice Live Touch is available now for £415 excluding VAT. Creative Effects, the definitive guide for producers, is the latest addition to the production suite series of ebook tutorials from Sample Craze, written by our own SOS Forum moderator, Eddie Bazil. The new book has been written to demystify the art and science of choosing and using effects processes and applying effects techniques creatively. Of course, the written word isn't the best medium for that kind of thing, so Eddie has also incorporated hundreds of very high-quality WAV files and lots of detailed colour screen grabs of the effects plugins, along with several practical exercises to help the reader understand, appreciate, and eventually master a very wide range of effects and techniques. Creative Effects, the definitive guide for producers, contains over 200 pages, divided into 10 chapters covering things like reverb, modulators, delay chorus, flanging, phasing, distortion, filters, pitch manipulation, and chaining all of these effects together creatively. It costs just £9.99 as a PDF and WAV download, which you can get from www.samplecraze.com, and you'll also find information there about the full range of Sample Craze tutorial, ebooks, and various other products too. In this month's Sound on Sound, we have a wealth of in-depth reviews, including Quantex Yard Stick Room Simulator, Dave Hill Designs Europa One Mic Preamp, and PSI's Audio A17M and A21M monitor loudspeakers. We have a high-end mic from Violet, which is the Garnet model, and an affordable USB mic from Samson, the Meteor. On the creative side, we take a look at Lexicon's native effects plugins, the Ear Reckon Ear Verb, which is just a basic algorithmic reverb that sounds rather nice, and the M5 multi-effects pedal from Line 6. There's also the Ace Sone Crusher X, which does just what it says on the tin. 
very nasty. Our featured gizmo is a Korg monotribe, and here's Chris Korf to tell you a little bit more about it and to unleash a brief audio demo that he put together for you. Hello, I'm Chris Korf, your news editor, and I've got a very special guest here with me today. He's flown all the way over from Japan. Say hello to Korg monotribe. So, how are you, monotribe? I'm very well, thanks. So, monotribe, I understand you're the newest member of the Korg synth family. And that unlike some of your cousins, you're completely analogue, is that right? How interesting. I see you've got a voltage-controlled oscillator on you. How many waveforms has it got? Sawtooth triangle and square, that's a fine selection. And what else have you got to offer? A filter, just like on the MS-20? Wow, that's impressive. But you've also got some other tricks up your sleeve, haven't you? I hear you've even got a built-in analogue drum machine. A 16-step sequencer? Wow, you really do have a lot of features. You're quite welcome. But, um, one thing I've noticed a lot of people saying is that uh, you don't have any MIDI ports. Whoa, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, I had no idea it was such a touchy subject for you. Well, I'm sorry, I, I promise I won't mention it again. Anyway, um, moving on. Uh, you're here to tell us about your latest review, aren't you? The July issue of Sound on Sound? Great, I can't wait to read it. Now, I know you're in a rush to get back to your family in Japan, but before you go, have you got time to show us some of the music you've made? Thanks, Chris. That's very creative. I think a career in children's radio beckons. Classic Tracks this month features Marvin Gaye's soulful piece of social commentary, What's Going On?, while Inside Track examines the pairing of Alison Krauss and mix specialist Mike Shipley, who returned to engineering after a 10-year gap working in a genre he'd never tackled before. The result was acclaimed as a creative and commercial triumph. 
We also look at what goes on behind a Peter Gabriel live show, while Arctic Monkey's fourth album, Suck It and See, produced by longtime collaborator and fifth monkey James Ford, goes under the sound-on-sound microscope. We continue our series on producing voiceovers at home, and of course we uncover more hints and tips for door users of all persuasions. Here's our US correspondent, Craig Anderton, to tell you what he has in store for you this month. Hello, Scenarians. Craig Anderton here for Sound on Sound. This month's Sonar Workshop deals with how to get the best tones out of guitar amp sims. After all, if you were recording a guitar through a physical amp, you wouldn't just pick a mic, point it in the amp's general direction, and hope that it sounds good. Amp sims need to be tweaked as well, not just to get the kind of sound you want to hear playing back, but also to accommodate your particular playing style, choice of pickups, string gauge, and the like. We'll cover how to create a more open back sound with high-pass filtering, get rid of fizzy resonances, tweak Guitar Rig 4's jump amp for a smoother sound, highlight the importance of gain staging, and a lot more. You don't have to settle for an amp sim sound once you've learned how to make it do your bidding. And the information in this month's column applies to any host that uses amp sims, not just sonar. Thanks, Craig. There's also an in-depth look at sampling vintage synthesizers. And if analysing other people's hits is your thing, we explore tracks from Kesha, Tiny Temper, Alexis Jordan and Chris Brown, as Mike Senior now explains. I'm Mike Senior, and I'm here to talk about this month's Mix Review, the fourth instalment of our new regular monthly column in which I critique recent chart hits from a production perspective. The aim of the exercise is to try to learn something from high-profile commercial tracks that you can apply to your own studio work whether it's something worth emulating or something better avoided. This month, I'll be deconstructing the middle section from Kesha's We Are Who We Are to explain why I think it creates such an effective build-up. And I'll also be explaining why I'm less than thrilled by the bass in Tiny Temper's Wonder Man, or indeed the harmonies in Alexis Jordan's Good Girl. Chris Brown's Beautiful People gets the once over too. Specifically, it's complex temper match delays and clever selective mix pumping techniques. In addition to all that, though, what I really wanted to alert you to is the forum, which contains all the critiques we've done so far as separate threads. In the first instance, this gives me the opportunity to post bonus material about each one, because there's always way more to say about these tracks than can be shoehorned into the fixed page count of the magazine. This also gives you the opportunity to share your own insights and opinions about these records, and to chew over what everyone else is saying about them too. And of course... You can also come and give me a grilling if you think I've been spouting rubbish. Head over to the SOS homepage, that's www.soundonsound.com, and pull down the forum menu. Thanks for that, Mike. This month's Studio SOS features James Welsh, who talks now to Paul about the changes made to his studio and the ensuing depletion of his chocolate hobnob stash. So we're here in the studio with uh, James Welsh, and we've just done a Studio SOS, which is largely involved moving things around and looking at power tools at B&Q. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you think this has uh, addressed some of the problems? Because this being a square room obviously was quite difficult. Yes, so before I had my table with my mixing desk and my computer in the middle of the room, which Paul so uh, uh, aptly named as the dead sphere, yeah. so, um, so we quickly moved the desk back towards the rear of the wall, um, got rid of the speaker stands yeah. completely, and we fashioned some lovely new speaker stands for my desk out of some granite and um, and some wooden plinths, and the difference is just fabulous. I mean, obviously, I'm now out of the base knoll area, and the um, and we've also put up some high frequency traps on the back wall and the ceiling, and that's just helped define the the stereo image 
as well. So yeah, it's much, much, much better. I think these more solid supports also help with the imaging a little bit. Yes, yes, of course. Yeah, obviously decoupling the speakers as, uh, as much from the desk as possible. So uh, yeah, and here we've um, decoupled it using very cheap and cheerful um, non-slip matting, haven't we? From fabulous. from one of the DIY stores. Yes. So we've got some of that under the shelves themselves, under the speakers, and underneath the tiles. So yes. Three layers of that. Three layers of it. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So, um, looks like a successful job with not too much money spent. No, only no, only only sixty pounds. Yeah, which is just fantastic. And, yeah. there, and there's some hobnobs left as well. And they are for you, <laughs> a, a present <laughs> for the road home. <laughs> well, I certainly won't turn them down. Well, thanks, James. <laughs> no problem, Paul. It. Thank you very much. Q and A time again. And our first Q&A comes from the Sound on Sound forums and says, I have a Yamaha Motif keyboard and I tried connecting it to the stereo line-ins of my Allen & Heath mixer using a radial passive DI box, but the level was too low to be usable. I found I needed to use a mic channel with a high gain setting to get a sensible level, but I don't have any spare mic inputs left. Is this normal and is there a solution I can try? Paul, what would you advise? Well, of course, most passive DI boxes take a line input and then pad it down to microphone level, so what's happening is exactly what you'd expect. So what you need is something that takes line level in and gives you line level out, some kind of ground lifting solution, I guess. The level should be fine straight from the keyboard. They're enough to work in a line level input. And I think Hugh's got a couple of suggestions as to boxes that might work for this that uh, won't cost you a lot of money. Yeah, there are a few around. The one I find most useful in this kind of application is made by Art, ALT, and it's called the Cleanbox 2. It's a dual-channel device. It's got jack plugs in and out. Um, and basically, it's just a box with a transformer inside. So the transformer gives you the isolation from ground loops that's useful in a kind of PA application or even a recording application. Uh, it also does the balancing, so it takes your unbalanced Motive keyboard output and balances it up, ready to feed into the balanced line inputs of your console. Um, and it costs about £40, so it's not a huge bank-breaking kind of outlay, but it will give you all the isolation protection you will need, as well as the balancing and freedom from ground loops, and it doesn't lose any level. It's a one-to-one -one transformer, so whatever comes in comes out at the same level, and you'll be able to connect that straight to your line-ins without any trouble at all. Is that a mono or a stereo box? Here? It's a dual-channel box, yeah. There are two transformers in so there. So you only need to buy the one. Sounds like a good solution. Yeah. OK, moving on. Next question. Can I record an electric guitar if I don't have a DI box? Similar sort of topic area, but different answer. What do you say, Paul? Again, it's down to levels and impedances, isn't it? Mm. A typical line-level uh, input stage has an impedance of around 47 kilo ohms, whereas a guitar pickup prefers to see something over 500k and typically around 1 mega ohms and certainly you wouldn't want to go less than around 500k so what you need is some kind of matching device now a lot of audio interfaces have a, a little instrument button on the line input you push that in and it becomes in essence a, a DI if you have that you can plug straight into it if not then a separate active DI box will work um, but the other thing you might find you have if you've got a boss pedal kicking around They've got an active bypass, which means that when you bypass a thing, it isn't truly bypassed, it's actually buffered. So you can use a boss pedal in its bypass position as a guitar DI. Yeah, sounds good to me. I can really sympathise with the person who asked this next question, and he says, Why do all monitor speakers claim to be very accurate, they're flat from DC to light with immeasurably low distortion, and yet they all sound completely different? What's going on? <laughs> One for you, Hugh, I think. 
yeah, they're all lying, aren't they, really? <laughs> There's no such thing as an accurate monitor. It's, it, it can't exist. Monitors are far and away the weakest point in any kind of signal chain when you think about the distortion that they produce. But, okay, they all try and, and deliver reasonably accurate results, I suppose, or as good as they can possibly get. The difference is that, okay, you can make the on-axis frequency response very, very flat. Technology allows us to do that. But there's much more to a speaker than just its on-axis response. If you put a speaker in the middle of a room and walk around it, you can hear sound from all around it, and the tonal quality of that sound changes really quite dramatically as you move off-axis from the front and move out towards the sides and around the back. So speakers project different sounds into the room, different frequencies into the room with different strengths, and different speaker designs do that in different ways. So every speaker has a different off-axis response, and as a result it sounds different in any given room. Because it's that off-axis sound that bounces around the room and gives you the impression of what the whole thing sounds like. So you would expect speakers to sound more similar if you heard them in an anechoic chamber, for example? Yes, I think you would, because in that situation you would just be hearing the on-axis sound, and most speakers are reasonably similar in terms of their on-axis alignments. But the other issue, of course, is not the frequency domain, but the time domain. And different speaker designs have very different time domain responses. Things with ports in tend to resonate at a low frequency, and, and that extends the amount of energy at low frequencies, and the thing kind of rings a little bit. Uh, you don't perceive it as ringing, but it, it does drag out the amount of energy and change the character of, of sound. Yeah, it essentially uh, extends the length of bass notes, doesn't it? Makes them less well-defined. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Sealed cabinets don't have that problem, but they have different problems instead. They have a, a different bass response, it falls off in a different way, and there are limitations to how loud they can go. So I suppose the imperfection of the off-axis response is yet another reason why you should have good acoustic treatment at either side of where you sit on the mirror points, because the last thing you want is this very inaccurate off-axis sound bouncing back to your listening position. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the whole key of, of what we do with those mirror point absorbers. That's the whole idea of it. Well, I was wondering why we did it. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you know. I just did it for the chocolate biscuits. <laughs> This next question is an amalgamation of several readers' questions all on the same issue. Uh, essentially they say, what's the big deal with all these emulations of vintage compressors? Surely a compressor gets loud bits and makes them quieter, so why do they all sound different? Or do they all sound different? And why is it so important to copy the old ones? Well, they all sound different because they all use different technologies and approach the problem in slightly different ways. And as a result, they have slightly different sonic characteristics. And people like those differences in the same way that microphones with different sized diaphragms will sound different. It's just a different way of doing things. And some of those early designs just happened to work really, really well and sound really nice and very musical. I suppose part of this issue is that a compressor doesn't just make things quieter when they exceed the threshold, but it also changes the envelope of the sound and the attack and release characteristics of the thing are going to surely influence the way that sounds. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, that's exactly it. And the, the nature of the device that does the, the gain control itself, whether it's an opto sensor, uh, whether it's a, a valve voltage-controlled amplifier situation,